Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Paymar, and you are listening to The Big Shift, the podcast that looks at the massive changes our world, our country, our politics, our media, and our institutions are confronting. Today, we're discussing our volatile economy with a longtime expert in the field, Dr. Nicholas Sargent, the author of several books, including Global Shocks, an investment guide for turbulent markets. Nick, welcome to the show. So glad you're taking the time to discuss the economic turbulent times that we're living through today. Well, Jim, thanks so much for having me. Um, You know, I would say I've covered the markets since the 70s. And this, I would rate, is maybe the most complex situation I've encountered. So uh, your podcast is very timely. (laughs) Okay. Well, listen, for a little bit more background on you, uh, Nick uh, received his PhD in economics from Stanford, went on to work for the Federal Reserve Bank, the U.S. Treasury Department, and then he turned to a career on Wall Street where he worked as an economist and global strategist at J.P. Morgan, Solomon Brothers, and Prudential, just to name a few. Today, he's a senior economic advisor for Fort Washington Investment Advisors with a mere $69 billion in assets under management, not a small chunk of change. What a brilliant career, Nick, and so much to talk about. Why don't we start off with the global economy? We've suffered through a series of global shocks, the coronavirus pandemic, which is still with us, the energy shock related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, shutting down gas supplies to Europe, and of course, the biggest threat of all, climate change wreaking havoc around the world. And you mentioned just a moment ago, you've you've never confronted a time like this in the last 50 years. What do you make of it when you look at the big picture, the macro picture? Um, you know, I think that it, it is the uh, the complexity. For example, you know, we haven't had a pandemic for 100 years. And there was a big debate, um, you know, was it going to be um, a V-shaped uh, situation like a hurricane hits and then once it's passed, it's over? Um, you know, we, had, we went through that debate. And, um, you know, to some extent, what we did have was a very steep decline. And then by the time you'd say we're in recession, we were over it once we reopened businesses. And then we thought we were you know, about done with COVID when along comes Putin and Russia, as you say. So we threw an energy shock on top of this pandemic uh, shock. You know, so the bottom line for me is we're all trying to figure out where will the dust settle. And amazingly, because nobody saw this, some people worried about inflation, but, but, but Jim, we wound up with the highest inflation rate since the early 1980s, four decade high. And, right. and, and that's forced the Fed to respond by raising interest rates aggressively. So to me, that's how I would distill how it all played out. That's the most important factor. So, you know, this has forced the Fed to raise rates and, and a lot of economists, and I'm not sure where you stand on this, feel that the Fed was a little bit slow in, uh, you know, putting the pedal to the metal, so to speak. Uh, But there have been five hikes in 2022. What do you think we might see going forward? Uh, We're, you know, just uh, six weeks out and we're into 2023. What does that look like for you? Right. Well, the big question for investors is, 
does the Fed pivot? Because, you know, you, you talked about the five rate hikes. The last four have been three quarters of a percentage point. And again, you have to go back to four, four decades ago before we've seen that type of move. So I think that the real question is, when does the Fed, it's not going to take its foot off the brake, but when does it start to ease up? And I, I think that we're going to find out either at the next meeting or in early uh, 2022. And my hunch is that maybe they dial things down. I still think they're going to raise rates, but maybe they move half a point instead of three quarters of a point and eventually taper to a quarter of a point. And the market would love that. Uh, they would love to see that. We, we've had a phenomenal rally uh, of late predicated that that is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And the only caution I say, I think it's a reasonable expectation, but what I try to tell people is, look, uh, the days in which the Fed bails out the stock market, we got to get away from that. Um, mm -hmm. Because that contributes to bubbles, housing, stock, right. et cetera. So my call is that the Fed has to key off of inflation where it will be, not where the stock market is. That's true. And, and you know, in spite of everything that's going on, a, a war in the middle of Europe, uh, a continued COVID outbreak. I mean, every time I turn around, someone I know has COVID. But the U.S. economy remains pretty resilient overall. I mean, growth has softened somewhat, but consumers are still going out there and they're spending and the, the labor market is tight. So, you know, how do we read this? Um, you know, you, you nailed it. My the, the, the message I have, you know, um, you go, when you've been in the markets as long as I have, uh, you know, Jim, I remember in the early 80s, interest rates got to 20 percent under Paul Volcker. And right. people were saying recession, recession, recession. And guess what? There was one, but it took two years to unfold. Mm -hmm. So I learned then that the economy is more resilient to interest rates than I think most people today realize now. When do you really see problems? To me, it's when credit uh, stops, when banks stop lending, um, mm -hmm. when it's difficult to access capital markets. So, you know, if we go to the 2008 financial crisis, what made it so bad? Well, it wasn't that the Fed raised interest rates. It was that the financial system shut down. And mm -hmm. so the, the good news today that I think people got to remember is this isn't a replay of the financial crisis. The banks are in relatively good shape today in terms of being well capitalized. You know, there, could there be problems like in crypto? Sure. But that's mm -hmm. going to bring the economy to its knees. Well, you know, when you go back to 2007, 2008, when we went into what they call the Great Recession, I mean, uh, there were there was panic on Wall Street again, uh, and like you said, credit shut down, and uh, the economy just went into a total tailspin. Now today, 
there's a belief that perhaps we may go into another recession next year. I think the odds are something like 50 to 50. Uh, what, what's your thinking? You know, I, I'm pretty much in that camp. Um, you know, uh, the way I, th I think of things is, as you say, so far, consumers hanging in, so far, the job market's tight. So then you say, well, what are the headwinds? And I see two. One, I don't think the Fed is done raising rates, even though it may go slower. Uh, but two, Jim, the overseas economy is much weaker. I mean, Europe right now is in recession. Mm -hmm. I go to China, you know, the second largest economy in the world. During the 0708 situation, China could spend its way out of its problems. Today, uh, their economy is hurting worse than ours because of their COVID restrictions uh, and the like. So China is not the locomotive it used to be. And therefore, um, you know, I've got to be prepared that at some point the economy, um, you know, uh, weakens further. And then is there a formal recession? You know what? I'm not sure. But I'll tell you what, I think for many people, it will feel as if it is a recession. And that's what matters is how you affect people's expectations. Well, you talk about China. I mean, they were uh, at 11% GDP growth for many, many years, and now they've sunk to 5 6%. But let's say they stop the COVID lockdowns. Yes. Uh, will their engine then start to recalibrate and uh, and start to grow again? And And our economies, the Chinese and American economies, are so intertwined. As much as we see conflict between us geopolitically, uh, we need their product and uh, they need our consumer market. So are we going to be able to get over this hump? I know there was a meeting between uh, President Xi of China and President Biden of the United States. Uh, there's got to be some cooperation here to get things back on track. Uh, Jim, I could not agree more about the interdependence of the U.S. and, and China. You know, um, although what I would tell you is that my view has modified somewhat. Um, for example, um, uh, 2018, when Donald Trump announced the tariffs on uh, to begin on China, I thought that was going to be a mistake because I feared a slowdown in trade meant a slowdown in uh, world economic uh, growth. Um, the you know since then, of course, um, tensions with China have worsened, and you know right now, uh, if I was Biden. Uh, meeting with uh, Xi, I think, first of all, you got to, you know, we have to set the tone. Here's here's the boundaries. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think the key relation, the way, if I was in his shoes, I would go and say, President Xi, congratulations. You're, you know, your economy uh, for the last 25 years, uh, there's not many countries that can rival what you achieved. Phenomenal but, growth. Yes. Phenomenal. But remember, remember, that the essential part of it was your ability to tap into the greatest consumer market in the world. That's the U.S. of A. Right. So we've got to do what is in U.S. best interests. And, um, you know, right now in the conflict with Russia, Russia's a pariah. It's no longer part of the free trading system. Mm -hmm. So basically, 
if you want to be a member of the club, let's call it World Trade Organization, let's call it free trade. If you want to be a member of that club, you've got to play by the rules of the game. You know, there's opportunity, but there's responsibility. And it's, it's going to be incumbent on you because well, well, what you say is true. We're both interdependent. I would truly tell you uh, China needs the U.S. market more than the U.S. needs China's market. Will some U.S. corporations say, oh, my God, we've got to shut down operations in, in China? Sure. But guess what? We're also beginning to see the early stages of onshoring what used to be offshore, which many people think is a welcome development. And we're also seeing, hey, um, we don't want to produce, uh, companies don't want to produce in China. Well, guess what? They go next door to Vietnam or Southeast Asia. So you are absolutely correct. I hope we figure it out. Um, but um, to me, this is the, this I, I call it, Jim, the wild card in the equation. Well, you know, the offshoring of, yeah manufacturing to China, uh, you know, drove their, their engine of economy. Uh, and today we're starting to pull back. You're starting to see companies like Intel, you know, building massive chip factories and you're, you're seeing Foxconn, uh, supposedly coming to Wisconsin. Uh, you're seeing, uh, we don't need to be as reliant as we were in the past on the Chinese economy. In fact, it's it's somewhat politically dangerous when we're relying on them to produce product that we need in this country, especially when it comes to technology. Uh, we don't want them to be dominant. So how do we deal with that? Uh, you know, this is going to this is um, going to be the challenge for uh, policymakers going forward. There's no doubt. And, and Jim, what I would say is, is again, you're talking to someone who most of my career taught the virtues of free trade, the virtues of globalization. I was um, a proponent, but because of the national security issues today. Um, you know, I modified my stance, and mm -hmm. um, and uh, for example, on uh, you know the U.S. Uh, chip bill that was just uh, enacted, I wrote a commentary, um, and basically being critical of the Democrats in Congress because this is something that uh, Biden wanted. It is something both uh, Democrats and Republicans wanted, but they were stalling because you know, if you like, they were trying to. Uh, get pork barrel legislation, you know, hey, maybe we can uh, hold off passing this bill. We'll get more, th you know, more things. And I said, this is crazy. And uh, so fortunately, fortunately, uh, the bill was enacted. And I think um, that then it makes both economic sense, but it also is demonstrating that we've got to be more conscious of um, national security uh, in policy than we have, um, you know, since uh, the Berlin Wall came uh, tumbling down. Yeah. Let, let's shift gears for a minute and just uh, talk about, you know, you worked on Wall Street for many years and and people uh, are are frightened by what's going on in the market. For example, we gained 1,200 points in one day in November 2022. 
But we also saw the Dow plummet by close to a thousand points earlier in the year. How are investors supposed to deal with this kind of volatility? I mean, it spooks me <laughs> to uh, check my stocks. Jim, welcome to the club. <laughs> uh, uh, just on the personal side, um, hey, I was in the situation where, um, you know, as you know, uh, I'm moving my residences. I was um, buying residence in New York and then going to sell a residence in Virginia. And all of a sudden, when I see mortgage rates spike, when I see worry about the economy and the market, I'm going, oh, my goodness, am I going to be able to sell this house? Mm -hmm. did, and there was a big uh, relief. But to your point, um, you know, I, I think that my message for people is the following. Get used to this. Maybe not the extreme volatility, but get used to more volatility than we had seen, um, say, you know, for the last decade. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I say so for uh, two reasons. One. Um, one of the things that contributed to uh, very favorable returns, uh, the Fed and other central banks were setting interest rates at zero. And guess what? In Europe and uh, Japan, they had, we remember we, we had negative interest rates. So if you put money into a bank, you would get less than you put in. And people were doing it. Right, right. It's because they thought, inflation was going to be low forever. So, you know, um, my message number one is that those days are over and we've mm -hmm. got to get back to a world of more normal uh, interest rates. So that's that's a key consideration. Well, and what, what, is, what is normal to you, Nick? You know, here, here's how I would define it. Um, Jim, when I started off um, uh, well, for a long period of time, you know, people would say, hey, Nick, where do you forecast interest rates? And um, I used to use the example, um, I learned it in first grade. Like, what mm. are you talking about? And I said um, that my typical average in a normal period was, um, you know, two plus two equals four, or maybe it was two plus three equals five. What did I mean by that? I meant if you had a period of low inflation, 2%, um, interest rates at least have to compensate me for that. So that just sets a floor. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, I got to take into account growth. And in general, the rule is the stronger the growth, probably the more demand there is for credit. So therefore, higher rates. But let's say the U.S. economy um, historically grew at uh, 2 to 3%. Well, then I would go 2 plus 2 to 3 means... Typically, I'd expect um, interest rates that the Fed sets to be, you know, somewhere in that four to five zone. So my my conclusion then is that um, today, the tricky part, and this again adds to the volatility, um, where is inflation going to settle? Mm -hmm. Now, if we were convinced that the Fed is going to bring rates down to two, um, uh, or bring inflation down to two, hey, then I would say, yeah, I think the economy on average can grow about two. So that gives me uh, a Fed funds rate of four. But what I'm saying is I am in the camp that inflation comes down. It's not going to be as high as it is now. But, you know, if you ask me next year, where do you think the inflation rate's going to be? I would say, Jim, 
my best guess is three to four percent. So that's higher than what the Fed's long-term two percent target is. And let me ask you, you know, let me break yeah. in on on this two yeah. percent target that the yeah. Fed always talks about. Right. Why, why is two percent the marker? Why is it so important? And why is the Fed so rigid about two percent? I mean, I listened yesterday to Bloomberg Radio and, uh, you know, all of these companies are talking about, hey, inflation's good for business. You know, we get to raise prices. Our our profits are growing as a result of this. So and obviously that's being passed on to the consumers, but consumers are still spending. So, you know, the whole thing makes me dizzy sometimes. Well, welcome again to the, <laughs> welcome to my world. Um, Jim, you know, the, the way I, I guess I think about it, though, is that, um, you know, why did we wind up with 2%? I think that the um, simple explanation is um, people worried, um, uh, central bankers worried that, well, should we go for zero? You know, and then what they realized is, well, we'll hang on. Uh, sometimes you get sticky prices, whatever, um, that the fear was if you go to zero, then it means on average, you could have periods of falling prices called price deflation. Right. And what what scared the central banks again was that, oh my God, if interest, if inflation is gets so low, uh, you know, again, we don't want negative interest rates that creates so-called distortions. So I think the, the feeling was two gives you just a, a little bit of a cushion. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's let's say that discuss, that that talks about the floor. So now, what about the ceiling? Well, one of the mistakes again, I think that the Fed, if it goes back and says, "What did we do wrong?" Well, um, you know, during the pandemic, when inflation was still low, two percent, after the Fed had really kept inflation quite low, they go, "Well, maybe what we should do is target an average rate of." to meaning let's say that uh inflation comes in lower well hey we might be able to tolerate three percent even four percent for sure well the problem that the fed now realizes is of course it didn't stop at three or four Mm -hmm. what do we do when we're at seven or eight you know so i think uh you know that there's nothing magic about two but for about 20, 25 years, again, things were pretty calm. Now, Bernanke called it the great moderation. Mm-hmm. Growing, and we didn't have what we're going through now. And it was because inflation seemed, quote, under control. So, Nick, what about the increase in wages? Yeah. Uh, what impact is that having on inflation? And at the same time, we're seeing... Uh, tens of thousands of layoffs across the country, especially in the tech sector. Uh, so how does that all, f- I just don't get how we've got a unemployment rate that's almost at pre-pandemic levels today, yep. laying off people and inflation is going up. Yep. It, it just seems to be uh, very convoluted, very complicated, very complex and uh, we 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 haven't settled into like any kind of modicum of stability. Okay. Well, again, we talked. To, you used my favorite word, complex. So let me let me try at least share with you 
how I try to put the puzzle together. Um, the, the first point I would make was your first question. What do you think about wages? And some people would say, well, do wages cause inflation? And I'm saying you could have periods where that's the case, but I don't think it's the case today. In other words, what really happened is first the inflation rate spiked. You know, we got up to 8% or so. And then labor isn't stupid. You know, we're going to negotiate contracts. Um, hey, we want to be compensated because we think inflation's higher. So wages go up by, let's say, 5% or so. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. really, labor has been hurt in real terms, that their wages have gone up, but not by as much as inflation. But the, the way that I think wages are important is to the second part of the question, how quickly uh, does inflation come down? And if you start to get inflation indexed into wage contracts or into social security, blah, 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 blah. Um, guess what? It means that inflation can come down, but it comes down slower. Mm -hmm. uh, right. So that's, that's that first point. Now, let me address the unemployment issue. And you're quite correct that um, you're seeing these layoffs in the technology sector. But the way I would uh, uh, have you think about it is the following. In the stock market, when we were up, up and away, what sector led the charge? And Te technology, <laughs> record profits. Right. So I just see in the stock market that what went up the most and what became the most expensive once you get a turn in the market because of interest rates, that um, the, that sector gets impacted the most because just prices got um, uh, got too high. So well, yeah, it's a correction. You, yes, you, that's you're right. having a normalized correction. This is uh, yes. essentially what's happening. And I want to get back to something you were talking about earlier is mortgage rates. You said you put up a house for sale in Virginia right. and you're lucky to sell it. Uh, we see mortgage rates, uh, you know, tipping at around 7%. Yes. They go higher. What's that going to mean to the housing market? Oh, um, it's quite clear. The housing market is weakening as mm -hmm. we see. That, that if, if the consumer is hanging in, housing is certainly, I would say, the most vulnerable sector. And, and, and Jim, I, I, again, though, to, uh, to emphasize the importance of interest rates, I did a piece Oh, I think it was in the summer of 2021 where we headed for a housing bust. And here's my conclusion. Housing prices were very expensive in terms of people's, if you measured housing price to their take-home pay, you could say we were back to the bad old world of 2007. Mm -hmm. But then I said, but hang on, um, when I can get mortgage rates then at 3%, I said, okay, let me calculate, you know, your monthly mortgage payment to your uh, discretionary income. And guess what? It wasn't bad. Mm -hmm. So my conclusion uh, then was we're not headed then for a bust, but wait till the Fed has to raise interest rates because then that's going to change the affordability. And so what really has happened is just as uh, short-term interest rates went up far more than anybody expected, that impacted mortgage rates went up. So right now, if you measure 
housing affordability. And, and I'm not just taking then the price of the house, I'm taking the higher mortgage rate. Um, it's off the charts again. Well, I know. And, and isn't rule of thumb, uh, you shouldn't spend more than about 30, 35% of your take-home pay on your mortgage payment. I know that there are people out there paying 50 to 55%. That's not sustainable. Uh, and Jim, that's, you know, you, you, you know, you're not quite as old as me, but that's, that was, <laughs> your rule was the rule that I grew up with as well. You know, when I went and bought my first home, hey, right. uh, my, my uh, mortgage should be, I would have said even 25, 30%, right? Mm -hmm. When we went to the um, housing boom bust, yeah, it got over 50%. And that's why I was a pessimist on the housing market then and said, I don't want to be near here. And, um, you know, so are we close to that today? Um, I think, uh, I think reasonably, uh, I think reasonably close. So I'm in the camp that housing is certainly uh, an area of concern. Yeah, well, we're going to see a big shakeout. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I want to switch gears again. Uh, you know, one of the biggest problems that's come along is the federal debt. It's now $31 trillion. Total interest payments on government debt could come in as uh, around $580 billion this fiscal year. Our defense budget is only $754 billion. I mean, debt service is going to accelerate. Uh, and I, I, is, is this sustainable? I mean, do we have solvency problems in the United States? Uh, here's what I would say. Um, there are two questions. Uh, is it sustainable? Absolutely not. You're absolutely correct. Jim, you go back to the period before the, the global financial crisis. You know, like you said, then federal debt outstanding was... 10 trillion. So we have tripled to 30 plus trillion, mm -hmm. a little over a decade. Okay. And then, you know, uh, then you had um, people coming along. I don't know if you heard the expression modern monetary theory. Uh, it really wasn't modern and it really isn't a theory. It just basically was the way politicians said, hey, we don't have to worry about the budget deficit as long as interest rates are low and as long as unemployment, uh, you know, isn't an issue, um, you know, the government can borrow. It's costless. And what we now are going to are, are in the process of discovering is the interest rate increase just throws that theory into the trash can. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Jim. Uh, you know, so the bottom line is, um, and, and one of the things, by the way, with um, you know the midterm elections, you got right. I'm really in the camp that that's not such a bad thing. I think both parties. I'm not singling out one over the other. Both parties were profligate on spending, and we again, one of my messages is we got to get back to normal. So um, you know, I'm not forecasting insolvency. Um, or, or a debt crisis. But what I'm basically saying is we the biggest difference from the last two recessions is we don't have the latitude to do big spending by the federal government. Mm -hmm. we, we've already done it. Right, right. Uh, that option's gone. I, I, do you remember when the debt clock stopped in Manhattan? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Under 
That was during the Clinton years. I mean, do you think we'll ever, ever see that again? Uh, in in uh, the, the short answer is no. Uh-huh. But, 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 you know, I, I still remember, Jim, during that period, uh, it was funny because, uh, yeah, we actually were running budget surpluses. And believe it or not, it went back. Remember, Alan Greenspan was our Fed uh, chairman. He testified before Congress in the early 2000s that we might face a problem of, of government debt being drawn down too rapidly. Mm-hmm. Guess what? We took care of that problem. What, what was the what was the saying? Exuberance, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, irrational exuberance. Rational exuberance, yeah. And yeah. didn't the market crash around that one? That's right. <laughs> Listen, we're almost out of time, Nick. But I do I do want to ask a, a couple of just basic questions. Is the U.S. economy recalibrating? Is it broken? And what should consumers look out for? And how should they view the market going forward? I mean, there are multiple questions, but... uh... Yeah, well, let me take the first one, because I think that is an important one. And and here, you know, the uh, typical... Well, the the joke about economists, my profession is, um, you know, on one hand, on the other hand. I'm not doing that. Jim, this economy is not broken. Um, Again, given the choice, I could be uh, running any economy of the world right now including China's, I'll take ours. It's, it's a remarkable economy, um, you know, that um, do we have recessions? Of course we do. But what I think makes our country uh, so great is uh, in the United States, we've got tremendous labor mobility. Let's say there's unemployment in one section of the country. You know, remember when the oil prices went up and, uh, okay, uh, everybody left the industrial Northeast to come to the South and this sort of thing. So we have mobility that, and we're very adaptable people. Uh, Let's say uh, distinct from Europe where people don't go from one town to the next town, you know, Uh, but, but, but there's more to that. There's the entrepreneurship in the U S so, so I think that uh, my characterization is we're adjusting to uh, a climate of higher inflation, not necessarily as high as it is today and more normal interest rates and um, more normal federal spending. And so that requires a recalibration, but we're not broke. We're okay. Not. Okay. So I guess the bottom line for you is stay informed. Uh, the economy is recalib- uh, recalibrating. It's not broken. Don't panic. Uh, be realistic about returns on stocks. They're not going to be maybe as high as we saw over the last decade. Um, yep, I would. Those would be my three bits of advice. Um, you know, don't panic because I mean, it was a ter- last this past year was a terrible year for investors, whether you're in the stock market or the bond market. Um, and I can't. I'm not here to tell you that it can't go lower, but I'm saying. We priced in a lot of bad news, so this isn't the time to bail out. You could have bailed out um, when it was a lot higher. But I think that the other thing, uh, and this is where you do a public service, um, Jim, is stay informed. In other words, I'm I'm trying to tell you, I try to stay on top of the U.S. and global economy. And uh, you know, I'm one man. You try to do what you can, but I, I I devote most of my my career to doing that. But let's say you're not. Let's say you're just the typical U.S. investor. Um, you know, try to be informed so you have a 
reasonable view about inflation. You have a reasonable view about what the Fed will do. You have a reasonable view about the markets. Um, all I can tell you is, um, you know, you may find other people that will get higher returns than you are. But what I'm trying to do is make sure that you do well or that you're protected when things are tough as they are now and that you can benefit when things recover. Well, listen, we're, we're always going to see volatility. And if you look at a graph of the stock market going back 100 years, the trajectory is always to the upside in the end. So I think on that note, Nick, uh, we're out of time. Uh, we could talk about these issues for hours. I want to thank you again for taking time to discuss the economy with our listeners. And uh, that was uh, Dr. Nicholas Sargent of Fort Washington Investment Advisors joining us today on The Big Shift. I'm Jim Paymar, and stay tuned for the next podcast. It will be coming soon. 